When people who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are, it is only then that we shall see change. You are now listening to The Infamous Ones, a true crime podcast hosted by Kay on Spotify. A podcast aimed to uncover and share the stories behind heinous and insane acts that have been overlooked or overshadowed by mainstream media, getting justice for the voices that can't speak. What's up, y'all? It's your girl Kay, and I am the host of The Infamous Ones, a true crime podcast. The podcast designed to focus on crimes committed in the Black community that you don't hear about in mainstream media, giving a voices to those victims that have otherwise been silenced. Happy New Year, y'all. It is officially the first episode of 2024. I hope that you guys got to ring in the New Year safe and with the ones that you love and having a blast. I, myself, I spent some time at home with my honey bunny and the kids. You know, we kind of kept it chill and played games and then we popped a bottle at midnight, you know. Um, Honestly, I really didn't make any resolutions because I feel like you know, resolutions is just some crap that we say every year, you know, people say, oh, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to work out. And they go and spend all this money on a gold gym membership or, you know, Planet Fitness, whatever. And it starts off OK. And then <laughs> you turn into, as as Cat Williams will call it, a fat face on life. <laughs> yes, you do. Because by March, your ass is on the couch popping, you know, bonbons and watching TV. So I didn't really make any resolutions. What I did do was something that I saw on social media that kind of, you know, lit a fire. Um, So it was suggested that you take champagne bottles or wine bottles or whatever, and you write the accomplishment that you're setting out to do and you write it on the bottle. So that way, when you make that accomplishment, you pop that bottle. You know what I'm saying? Get you a whole bunch of champagne bottles, your favorite champagne, and you only pop it when you hit that accomplishment. I'm the type of person where I manifest things. You know, I make timelines. I do goals that way. I don't do resolutions because I feel like resolutions will never be done. For me, it is set a goal, set a timeline, and then when I hit it, celebrate it big. You know what I'm saying? For me, I'm trying to get more books out there, get more money. And of course, you know, growing my audience for the podcast. And I mean, it's, it's been doing amazing so far. So thank you all for sharing. Thank you all for leaving reviews, all of that. Now, with that being said, let's get into today's episode. So to recap, we're getting into part two of Justice for All, which was last week's episode where the infamous case involves Ja'Karen Harrison, the two-year-old victim, Katrina Harrison, another victim, and Ja'Karen's mother, Robin Bouget, Alfred's trifling-ass wife, and now I'm just going to say the guilty party, and Alfred Bouget, a loving father who was accused of raping and killing his two-year-old daughter. Now, when we last left off, Alfred had been arrested after they discovered that Ja'Karen had not actually fallen from the truck like he, you know, told the police. So here's where I think stuff starts getting a little interesting. See, Alfred took custody of Ja'Karen from her mother, on May 16th, 2012. And it was stated that, you know, she was happy and healthy. So from May 16th to May 28th, Alfred was introducing his daughter to multiple family members, you know, before he started getting ready for orientation because he had started a new job with a new trucking company in Alabama. So that's why he asked Robin along because he knew that she would be able to help with Ja'Karen but I feel like this is where he made the mistake was asking her along, knowing that she did not, you know, particularly care for Ja'Karen and they were going to be together night and day. OK, so Katrina had asked Alfred to take their daughter for a while so that he could get to know her and spend time with her. And 
he decided that he was going to throw this really big party. Like he wanted everybody to meet her. And not only that, Bethany was graduating high school. So he wanted to celebrate that. And then on top of that, his baby girl, Alfreda, had just turned a year old. So he wanted to include that. So he just said, you know what? We're going to throw a big ass party to celebrate. He had the party on May 19th of 2002. Now, remember, he got Ja'Karen on May 16th after they went to child support court and the judge ordered him to pay $160 a month in child support. So when she was introduced to the family and went to the party, everybody was saying how, you know, she was having the time of her life. She was riding ATVs and she did have a little bit of an accident where she fell off. But, you know, several family members said that she was okay. Um, she spent time with her sisters and her uncles. Bethany said she was playing hide and seek and like her dad was playing airplane with her. You know, when you're a little kid and your dad hoists you up and, you know, spins you around pretending to fly like an airplane. Like Ja'Karen was literally just giggling. And Bethany noticed that everybody there was enjoying themselves and happy and, you know, happy to meet Ja'Karen and see her. And everybody was smiling except for one person, Robin. Robin's ass was disgusted. Like the whole time that she was at that party, all she did was complain about having to take care of a baby that wasn't hers. She literally told Alfred, that's your kid and your fucking responsibility. You went and had that affair, so you take care of her. Now, does that sound like somebody that cares so much about a child's life? Like, fuck the fact that just a year before her whole ass had gone off and had an affair and gotten pregnant her damn self and didn't know if Alfreda was her side piece's baby or Alfred's baby. And, you know, Bethany happened to see a particular moment at this party where one of her cousins had brought Ja'Karen to Robin. And, you know, she was telling her like, hey, I think the baby needs a diaper change. And Robin told her, I don't give a fuck what she needs. And then like rolls her eyes at her and tells her, that's not my child. I'm not changing diapers for another woman's baby. And then just walks away from her. So how odd is it that a couple weeks later, this baby turns up dead. Now, I did want to make a correction to last week's episode where I stated that Alfred was arrested for the rape and murder on June 27th of 2002. He was arrested. However, he wasn't actually indicted and charged until a month later on July 25th. Now, he spent a good chunk of time in jail while the prosecution gathered their evidence to, you know, basically lock him up for life. Now, y'all pay attention to the time frame because this case, ooh, shit, it's going to come up later. So medical examiners stated that Ja'Karen's cause of death was an impact to the head resulting in brain injury. According to the ME, the injury was consistent with Alfred's allegedly holding her by the shoulders and slamming the right side and the back of her head against the window and the dashboard of the truck. So the medical examiner also stated that Ja'Karen had a bruised shoulder, human bite marks on her back and arm, scratch marks, injuries to her ears, loop marks on her body consistent with an electrical cord, a circular hole a quarter of an inch deep on the bottom of one of her feet, and then when she opened up her torso, she stated that there was deep tissue bruising in every area, every area of Ja'Karen's body. There were like 25 or 26 whip marks, 78 healed scars, 73 to 105 nonspecific contusions, eight pattern contusions, nine or 10 abrasions or exportations, some healing ulcerations, and three lacerations. Like, the way that they made it sound, this baby was just completely like a walking pin cushion. Like, I don't even know how she was able to function with all of that. In addition to that, after Ja'Karen had died, they took rectal swabs that revealed a presence of semen that was supposedly belonging to Alfred. 
Now, I'm mentioning all of these injuries and reports because, like I said, this is going to come up later, okay? So keep that in your, in your memory. Pretty much from the moment that Alfred was arrested, he maintained his innocence. And, you know, he said over and over, it wasn't me. I ain't do this. I did not hurt my baby. It was Robin. She was jealous of baby girl and she did it. I know she did it. I swear I didn't do this. But y'all, them fans wasn't trying to hear him. The minute that he was arrested, the shit show began. He's indicted and charged and incarcerated. And the feds do everything that they can to get all of this evidence and try to get everybody to turn on him. They're, you know, taking pictures from him and his family, some of which actually refute the claims that he was abusive and a murderer and that, you know, Ja'Karen was so bruised as everyone was led to believe. So the district court appointed Alfred an attorney by the name of John Gilmore. Now, John was like supposedly that dude when it came to defense attorneys and prosecution dealing with capital cases like Alfred's. And the first thing that John did was he came to him and was like, listen, they're wanting to give you a plea deal. I think you should take it. But Alfred was like, nah, I'm innocent. I ain't do this. I keep telling y'all it was Robin. I don't know why y'all don't believe me. Robin did this shit. Meanwhile, Robin is on the other side singing like the Georgia Mass Choir to anybody that would listen talking cold cash shit about her husband. And little Miss Alfredisha. Y'all, we just got to call her Disha because who shit. Um, <laughs> Disha was going right along with it, telling investigators that Alfred had beat her mother and beat her grandparents. And remember, y'all, she's only six at this time. I really hope that y'all are paying attention to all of this because, oh, it's about to come full circle. So like I said, the feds are searching Alfred's house for any and everything they can use. They confiscate all the pictures of him from his house and they even go to Bethany's house and confiscate the pictures from her. They're taking stuff from everybody. It's one particular picture of Alfred and Ja'Karen that they took when they first met each other. And in the picture, Ja'Karen is like got tears in her eyes and they're trying to make it seem like, you know, Alfred was just this horrible man and she was so afraid of him. Um, hello, she's two. She's a toddler who's seeing a nigga she ain't never met before. Of course she gonna cry. Hell, my toddler cries and is clingy when he's around strangers. Of course she gonna cry. He cries. Y'all using pictures of first meets in this joint? I'm grown and I don't feel comfortable around niggas that I don't know. So what do you expect a two-year-old to do? That just, that is the dumbest. It's gonna be a lot more like that. That's just dumb. Now, Robin and Disha, they were, you know, the star witnesses for prosecution they told investigators that Alfred wanted to get rid of Ja'Karen because he didn't want to have to pay child support for another child. The child support was $160 a month. The fuck? <sighs> Supposedly, he had made plans for disposing of her body and basically making it to where she just never made it back to Katrina. She never made it back to her mom. Robin says that she and Disha witnessed all of the things that Alfred did to Ja'Karen and that, you know, she told him so many times that she was going to, you know, be hurt or worse. She told investigators, there were so many times that he called her a bitch. Oh, that sweet baby. She would be on that potty so long that she would just fall asleep and fall off. And Alfred, well, he would wake her up and, and make her get back on there. And then he would call her names. And the investigators are like, well, what kind of names was he calling her? And Robin was laying it on thick, talking about some, he called her bitches and motherfuckers. And, and that's not all. He would tape her mouth shut. And when the adhesive was stuck on it, he would use alcohol to rub it off her little mouth. Oh my God, I just couldn't take it. So you mean to tell me you couldn't take it and you were just so devastated by all that he was doing that you continued to let your own kids, two daughters, be around him. You got a whole six-year-old and a one-year-old. You see that he's supposedly beating the fuck out of this baby. 
but you continue to keep your kids around him. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. She told so many versions of how terrible Alfred was and, you know, how she kept on and on warning him. And he told her, well, if something does happen to her, I'll just throw her in the woods and tell the cops she was kidnapped. Like, come on now, really? With all that we've learned about this man, there were so many things that were said about Alfred, about what he did to Jacaren. And all the while, he stuck to his guns. He kept saying, I'm innocent. It wasn't me. It was Robin. Robin is the one that wanted her gone. And that's where I started to think. They got fucked up, right? No, 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 no. You know you done fucked up, right? <laughs> I know, I know. That's usually directed towards the criminal. And trust me, I'ma have one for Robin's little trifling ass. But I had to give one to Alfred. And the reason being, like, sir, you knew what she was capable of. You knew Robin had a history of fucking with your kids. She got Junior to buy a gun and got him kicked out of school and then like completely messed up y'all's relationship. She had multiple situations with Bethany where, you know, she was having inappropriate conversations with her and putting her hands on her and literally yanked her to the ground in front of you. Like, I get it. I get that you were building your evidence to try to get custody of the girls, but Robin's ass should have never gone on that trip. And I mean, I know the alternative wasn't that much better because that means that you would have had to have left Jacaren with Robin. And honestly, hell, I wouldn't trust that hoe to watch my purse, let alone my child. But at least you, you know, being on the road and having her watching her, you would have had a clear alibi. And Robin would have fucked up like she has in the past. And she would have gone too far. And at least her ass would be in jail instead of you. But, you know, unfortunately, we can't change the way that things happened. So while the prosecution is doing their investigation, they're digging through Alfred's home. And one particular day, they see a dent in the wall in one of the bedrooms that matches the shape of Jacaren's potty. They then see these like reddish brown stains on the wall of the bedroom and they test it and it comes back that it's the, the, it's the blood of Jacaren. And they just automatically assume, up, oh, Alfred did it. Damn the fact there's a grown woman living there, Alfred's wife, Robin, two other kids, Disha and Alfreda. Oh, oh, and did I mention that there's another grown-ass man besides Alfred living in the house? Yep, Robin's uncle also lived there. So fuck the fact that there are two other adults and two other kids, not to mention Bethany coming in and out the house. Nope, let's just say Alfred did it. So <laughs> Alfred is in jail and the prosecution is preparing for trial. Now, the trial didn't occur until 2004. Um, February 9th, they begin their jury selection. And on March 2nd of 2024, or excuse me, 2004, my apologies, the trial began. Now, the trial lasted about two weeks. It ended on March 16th. And during the trial, Alfred was still in jail and he still wasn't allowed to call anybody, no visitors, no phone calls. And, and that was just kind of odd to me because I've never heard of a situation where you don't allow an inmate to have any type of conduct with their family initially. Like I get it, you know, if they're having behavioral issues or if there's, you know, a history of violence while they're incarcerated or they do something, you know, to where they violate a, a, a rule or something like that. But he was not allowed, when he was in jail, he wasn't allowed to talk to his family. He wasn't allowed visitors. And that just, it it really was weird to me. But the bad part, it didn't stop there. The prosecution also said, you know what? We're not gonna let his family members into the courtroom. Like they felt like it was gonna sway the jury somehow. So during the trial, prosecution brought up how Alfred was sending postcards to Katrina while they were out on the road to make it seem like, you know, Jacaren was just having this great time. 
They said that Jacaren was terribly beaten and bruised, so much so that a nurse who examined Jacaren at the hospital on June 27th testified that they couldn't insert a needle or an IV through her hands because they were so swollen and very hard, like, quote unquote, rockish. FBI Special Agent Megan Beckett testified that the baby's hands and feet were unlike anything she had ever felt on a human being, cold and just hard and swollen. It was a couple of other things that stood out to me in this trial that, for lack of better words, it was a little just kind of weird So during the time that Alfred was in jail, there were these three witnesses that came forward and they said that Alfred had made some kind of incriminating statements to them about his daughter. They talked about how he had told them that he was going to kill her and make it look like an accident and that, you know, he was calling her a bad child and talking about how she used to shake her butt all the time and stuff. And the reason why I said it was a little weird to me is because the inmates that came forward were informants, like specifically were informants. And like I said, the prosecution wouldn't allow any witnesses on Alfred's behalf, but they had plenty of witnesses for prosecution. Alfred was literally his only witness for the defense and he stuck by his guns. He kept saying over and over, I did not harm her. I never touched her in any inappropriate manner. I did not cause her death. He told the jury during cross-examination that, you know, he did tell the story initially that his daughter had fallen from the truck to try to protect Robin. And when he, when the prosecution started asking him about, you know, her injuries, the explanation that he gave it now, it was a bit bizarre and, you know, the prosecution felt like it didn't really add up, like he wasn't being truthful. But there was one particular witness that came forward and said that during a trip that they were on, Alfred had said that Karen's head, you know, Karen had hurt her head and Alfred had made a joke about how her head had swollen up to the size of a watermelon and like kind of laughed it off. And I did see that in the documentation. I did see that joke and I was kind of like, wow, why the hell would you say that? Because it just, it really made you look incriminating. You know, it it just didn't seem like his character. And to hear that, I'm like, what? But like I said, it, it was a lot about this case that just didn't sit right with me. Nobody else came forward except Robin and these inmates. Now, there were plenty of people that could have testified on Alfred's behalf, one of whom, of course, was Bethany. She witnessed a lot. She was older than Alfredicia, but yet they didn't want to hear Bethany. Alfredicia was six, yet Bethany is a high school graduate and you don't want to hear from her. She literally witnessed her father begging and pleading, Robin, baby, please, I need you to accept this child. I accepted your shortcomings. I accepted your affair and the baby that you made that may not even really be mine. Why can't you do the same? I know I made a mistake. She witnessed Robin constantly just treating this baby like trash. God, I wish that somebody would have recorded something or that somebody would have called CPS or, you know, could have done something. One small action could have just changed this child's entire outcome. It could have changed Alfred's entire outcome. Had they let Bethany testify, they would have also picked up on the fact that little Miss five-year-old Disha was saying things that appeared very coached and rehearsed. No five-year-old has a vocabulary like that. I don't give a damn how intelligent you are. She knew about her father's affairs with other women and was talking like she was 55 instead of five. She knew a lot and she repeated everything. But here's the problem. She was inconsistent. Originally, she said that her father never hurt her sister or anyone else. And then all of a sudden, a year later, After only speaking to her mom and to the prosecution, she changes her story 
and she says, yeah, my daddy was banging the baby's head against the truck window. Now you changing shit up. All right, but check this out. While I'm, you know, doing my research and doing some digging, I found out that when Ja'Karen died, Alfred was nowhere near her. He was doing the delivery on the back of the truck. She wasn't even in his care at the time. She was with Robin. And, you know, she had been with Robin alone by herself before because when Alfred was on the road and he did have Ja'Karen, he would leave her with Robin. Surprise, surprise. Hmm. So they bring up Robin's restraining orders that she had on Alfred. And, you know, she admitted she was like, yeah, I just filed him because I was angry. I was upset. He never put his hands on the kids. You know, all of that. Now, on a side note, I'm wondering if the defense asked Robin since her story was, you know, he was so abusive. Why not turn him in? Why not alert somebody that, you know, he was doing all of these things. Why not contact the authorities? Why not call him yourself? Why not take documentation of, you know, what he was doing to provide this so-called physical evidence? But in all of the court documents that I reviewed, there was just nothing that, you know, said that they asked those questions. And they could have, you know, but certain parts of the court documents weren't public record um, because of the fact that these were minor children. So the prosecution decides they're going to say that this was premeditated murder and that Alfred, Alfred had planned to kill his daughter. Their argument was that he was more likely to commit acts of violence in the future and he would be a serious threat to society and his family. And Alfred's defense team was quick to fire back. They were like, listen, He's got this impaired capacity to understand the wrongfulness of his conduct. He was under unusual and substantial duress. He's a truck driver. He was driving long hours. Not only that, but he was dealing with trying to figure out what he was going to do with divorcing his wife and trying to get custody of the kids. So basically they were like, listen, this nigga snapped. Okay. We're going to try the insanity plea. We're going to try to say that he just, he had all of this going on mentally and he fucking snapped. Despite the fact that Alfred is saying, I did not do it. So they end up bringing up the history that he had of abuse with his mother and, you know, how that along with driving 18 wheelers all of the time with three kids under the age of 10 and then the wife that you're planning on divorcing, all of that is just building up and building up. But unfortunately, it wasn't enough. And... The jury found Alfred guilty. On March 16th, 2004, the jury took five and a half hours and they found Alfred guilty of murder. His sentencing took place March 25th and the jury actually recommended the death penalty. And so did the prosecution. They were asking for it because of his quote unquote violent history. They presented testimony from Alfred's ex-wives and his girlfriends, acquaintances and his kids, and these little jailhouse informants, these little snitches that I felt like they were just, you know, paid to say those things. They brought all of that to, you know, plead the case of he needs the death penalty. The defense, they turned and said, listen, we've got evidence as well about his abuse. They, you know, talked about how his mom was beating him and Alfred's own sister and cousin came forward and they were like, listen, Alfred used to get his ass beat by his mama to the point that he had to go live with an elderly neighbor who, if y'all remember, I mentioned in episode one was Mary Clayton. And Mary Clayton's own grandson testified on Alfred's behalf in the sentencing, you know, like, dude, this nigga went through it. Like, I saw the bruises. He was getting that ass beat. He was called slow. You know, he used to get picked on because he was the light-skinned dude with the green eyes. I Listen, this clearly was before my time because, bruh, (laughs) light-skinned with green eyes now? What's that dude's name that everybody be going crazy over um, that was like once a, a jailbird and like his little mugshot went viral and now he's in like all of these little thug movies. Homie got some pretty eyes and he light skin. Not my type, but you know, 
hey, obviously light skin is in. Okay, so y'all remember that I mentioned Katrina Harrison, Ja'Karen's mom? Well, the sad thing is she never got to see the outcome of the trial as she herself was a victim. Katrina had her own situation going on back in Livingston, Texas, which was part of the reason why she asked Alfred to take their daughter. She didn't want her around all of the craziness. She died literally months after her daughter before the trial ever began. Katrina was involved with a very dangerous man by the name of Charles Michael Thomas. See, Charles also was one with a violent history, only his was documented. And I feel like the defense could have brought this to light when it came to the case of Ja'Karen and what she had been exposed to. Because remember how they were saying when they opened her torso, they had all of these healed wounds and everything. Like my brain started thinking, what if she was being abused by her mother's boyfriend? What if Charles was the one that had caused all of this? Part of the reason that Katrina let her daughter go with Alfred is not only the fact that, you know, he was her father, but she had some things that she had to get situated with this man. He was abusive. He was constantly putting his hands on her. And it got to the point that Katrina couldn't fight him anymore. On December 19th, 2002, when Katrina was just 26 years old, she and Charles got into an argument. And he just began beating her. When she tried to run, he stabbed her several times and she died. The strange twist in all of this is, you know, I shouldn't even call it a twist, but I feel like the upside to it is that she was able to be joined with her baby girl, you know, and be there for her in the heavenly spirit. But nonetheless, her life was still lost long before she got to find out the truth. I mean, of course, you know, I'm the type of person where I feel like, okay, you're in heaven with your baby and your baby's able to tell you what happened, you know, but for the purposes of this episode, y'all get where I'm going with it. After she was stabbed and killed, her boyfriend Charles was in prison and he ended up committing suicide before the trial. And His voice wasn't the only one that was silenced. Remember how I told you in week one that Bethany was run off the road by her stepmother's side piece? Remember Robin was messing with somebody who owned this limousine company and he was mad because, because, you know, old slutty ass Robin got pregnant and decided to keep the baby that he didn't want? Well, the prosecution had arranged for him to testify in the trial. But months before the trial started, this dude turns up murdered. See, he was going to testify and go to trial and talk about his affair with Robin and disclose some things that, you know, the courts didn't know anything about and weren't aware of that probably would have shown Robin in a more negative light. But all of a sudden, he ends up dead. Hmm. So this man is dead. Katrina Harrison ends up dead by her boyfriend. And then boyfriend Charles kills himself in prison. Hmm, how convenient. And it only gets more intriguing from there. During the trial, medical experts recant their entire original statement that Ja'Karen was raped and that she was abused. Why? Because there was never any fucking proof of it. That spatter on the wall in the bedroom of Alfred's house, not Ja'Karen's blood like they said. The rectal swab, false, and yet prosecution sticks with her first statement incriminating Alfred. They don't even consider the fact that she recants. Alfred is sentenced to death and is committed on April 14th, 2004 to the Federal Bureau of Prisons in Terre Haute, Indiana. He stayed on death row from then until his execution date, and the entire time he wasn't allowed visitors except for his legal defense. He wasn't allowed phone calls, nothing. And thanks to that overtanned poor excuse of a so-called president reviving the executions and wanting to make sure that he could kill as many as blacks as possible before he left office in January of 2021, several inmates were executed by lethal injection. 
immediately after Alfred is sentenced, his legal team starts putting in appeals. They're putting them in back to back to back and they're getting denied. Now, it was one particular appeal that I looked at that kind of stood out to me, which was the appeal that he filed on August 5th, 2013, requesting a certificate of appealability. Now, the Southern District of Texas felt like he hadn't made a substantial showing of the denial of the constitutional rights, so they denied his application. Um, basically, Alfred put in an application stating that he was requesting a certificate of appealability because his constitutional rights were violated. But the District of Texas was like, nah, we're just going to go ahead and deny it. But what I noticed was Alfred had submitted several things in the appeal to try to get, you know, their certificate, one of which was a declaration from Dr. Holden, a psychiatrist that stated that if he had been called as a witness during the sentencing phase, that, you know, he would have testified that majority of actions that occurred during a disciplinary, you know, incident such as this, it's not necessarily that the parent is intending to kill the child, but just cause the child some type of physical harm. Now, at this point, Alfred, I think, knew that there was no way that he was going to get an appeal based on the whole, I didn't do it. So he kind of caved and gave in to the attorneys like, listen, we're going to try to get this appealed by saying that you snapped. This is where you need to trust us to do the insanity plea. Now, at this point, he had gotten another attorney. Um, Gilmore was out. He had a new attorney which I think really kind of helped him in other ways. Granted, it didn't help him with his sentencing, but it did help him in other ways. Um, so he also submitted a declaration from a forensic psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Robert L. Sadoff, who actually evaluated Alfred and found that, you know, he had features that affected his ability to function. He had the history of abuse, both physical and sexual, from his mother. He had some deliberating personality disorder. There was some organic brain damage. And like low-key, his IQ was in the range of like mild mental retardation. So with all of that, plus being under stress from driving and getting a divorce and, you know, trying to get custody of the kids and finding out he, he has another child, that's what caused him to snap. And then on top of that, he decided, all right, that's not enough. I need to submit more. So he gets a declaration from the clinical psychologist, Victoria Swanson, and she tells the courts he's mentally retarded. He had a borderline personality disorder, not a narcissistic one. There is a difference. Um, and she kind of just like argued and disagreed with what the psychologist for the prosecution stated. Now, his argument was that when it came to the constitutional rights, the trial counsel was ineffective because they did not give the jury a complete view of his background. He wanted people to know about his mother and how much she hated him because, you know, he looked like his father. She would call him names like little yellow bastard, burning with cigarettes. And, you know, his father wasn't around when, when you know, she was doing all of this. He dipped. So basically Alfred's attorneys kind of fucked him over because they didn't disclose any of this to the jury. Plus they prevented like 20 plus witnesses, including medical physicians from testifying in his defense. They weren't answering phone calls. They weren't returning emails for months at a time that could have helped their client. So they breached his Sixth Amendment right, you know, by doing that. Not only that, but they rarely objected or counter questioned the prosecution witnesses throughout the entire damn trial. Like basically it was just like, all right, we're going to do the bare minimum. Yeah, we're just going to, you know, ask some questions every now and then. But despite all of that, the district court said, sorry, this ain't enough. And they denied his appeal. On December 11th, 2020, after spending 18 years, five months, and 16 days in Terre Haute, Indiana at the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Alfred Bouget became the ninth person to be executed by lethal injection. 
His last words before execution were, I confess and repent to God all I have ever said and done against your will. I ask for forgiveness for all those who planted and plotted evidence in my home and truck, for they know not what they did. In no form or fashion did I murder, rape, or sexually molest my daughter or anyone else in my whole life. I did not commit this crime. I love my kids with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray you welcome me into your kingdom. As I close my eyes, may I enter into your hands and kingdom. Alfred was pronounced dead at 8.21 p.m. Now, he was put to death the day after Brandon Bernard, who was an accomplice to the murder of Todd and Stacey Bagley. He died by lethal injection the day before. Alfred was the ninth of 10 people to be executed by the federal government in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. That was the highest number in a single year since 1896. You heard me correct, not 1996, 1896. Again, because of that tan asshole putting a rush to put inmates to death in a pandemic so that he could say that he did it before he left office. Listen, I hope that Alfred haunts the fuck out of everybody that failed him and did not care. I hope he haunts the fuck out of the prosecution. I hope he haunts the fuck out of that whole Robin. I hope that every time she with her dude, if she got one, that when she get ready to bust her nut, that she sees Alfred's face and he just scares the shit out of her. I really hope that he haunts everybody that basically had him wrongfully executed and 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 put it to where he spent all of those years in prison for something that I honestly don't think that he did. But what really disturbs me is that for 18 and a half years, almost 19 years, this man was not granted outside contact or allowed to speak to his family and had to send letters through other inmates, through other prisoners that also didn't make it to his family. The only way that he could talk to his family was through his attorneys. What was the reason for that? What was the reason? What was the reason? What was the reason? I just explained the reason. What was the reason, bitch? I don't need to explain myself to you. What was the reason? There are just so many things that are questionable in this case. For one, originally it was stated that there was proof of rape and molestation of Jacaren, but yet Dr. Rouse, the same doctor who made the claims, came back and refuted her own damn statement. She's supposed to be an expert pathologist and rape specialist. If she's the one that made the initial statement and you were quick to listen to her then, now because she's stating that there was absolutely no signs of rape, admitting that she exhibited hesitancy about her conclusion as to the cause of death and expressing the willingness to consider the opinion of another neuropathologist, now all of a sudden the prosecution doesn't want to hear it? What's the prosecution hiding? Oh, I know the truth. Or or how about the fact that they stated that there was blunt force trauma caused by slamming Jacaren's head into the 18-wheeler window, killing her on impact, but yet there was no blood found in the truck, the window was intact, and if you're banging somebody's head into the window, it's gonna cause some type of bleeding or hell, a crack in the window if you're doing it that hard. But there was none. Alfred wasn't even in the damn truck when the girl was killed. The only one that was in the truck was Robin and Alfreda. He was unloading it at the back when he and the other workers felt the truck shaking. And when he came around, he saw Robin performing CPR, as she so-called told the investigators, on her lifeless body. Not just that. But her autopsy shows that all these bruises that she supposedly had that were caused by Alfred were hematomas that were at a minimum one week old, which means that it would have happened before he supposedly was banging her head into the truck. Oh, and did I mention that there was no fractured skull? So that whole story of him banging her head into the window, yeah, never happened. Yet another example of a cover-up. Y'all still not feeling it? Okay, all right. 
Hell, let's go to the next accusation, the abuse and torture that led up to her death. Funny, because a cousin of Robin's was with Jacaren the day before she died and made no type of reports of abuse. Then Robin gets caught in a lie. Mm-hmm. She said that originally Alfred had the baby sitting on the potty for hours, forcing her to stay there. But then later she tells the investigators, oh, well, I went with my cousin Jason to go pay some bills and I was gone for hours, which means you didn't see shit. Hey, Robin, I got a question for you. You know, fucked up, right? No, 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 no. You know you done fucked up, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I told y'all I had one for her trick ass. So, multiple experts and specialists with several years of knowledge all agreed that there was no abuse. And because the defense refused to return calls for weeks at a time until the day of the trial, it couldn't be heard because, unfortunately, that makes it inadmissible. So the jury can't hear any of that. This is why Alfred said that he had ineffective counsel. Another thing, y'all, Jacaren interacted with so many family members while she was in her father's care, and none of them said that there were signs of abuse. The only ones that were claiming that were Robin's family. And of course, Robin's family is going to defend her. Well, almost all of them because her own uncle like I said he was living in the house and he would watch the children for them when they were both gone so how strange is it that the uncle was never asked to testify even though he also watched the kids y'all y'all see where I'm going with this right y'all still need more proof okay what about the whole claim that Alfred would make Jacaren sit on the potty for 23 hours a day let's see is that even humanly possible? Like, I'm a mother of a toddler and I sit his little butt on the potty, but I know there's no way possible for him to stay on a potty for 23 hours a day. The boy got to get up and eat. The boy got to play. The boy got to have fun. Not only that, but there would be skin breakdown present on their behind. And guess what? There was none on hers. Disha even said during the trial that her little sister followed her everywhere. So if she was forced to sit on the potty all the time, how could she follow her big sister everywhere? Oh, but wait, at one point, Disha actually gets confused on the stand and said, oops, that was the part my mommy was supposed to say. Baby, if that ain't influencing the witness, I don't know what is. And then, most important, the autopsy showed that Karen's death was caused by hypernatremia, which is caused by swallowing like too much salt water. Now, the thing with hypernatremia is it can cause brain contusions. A lot of people don't know what it is. And when you have a two-year-old, it's not like you can, you know, expect them to really vocalize it. So she can't vocalize if she's feeling lethargic or she's having a seizure or confusion, which are some of the symptoms that are caused by hypernatremia. So of course, Dr. Rouse misdiagnosed it because when she sees the contusions, she's thinking it's from blunt force trauma and not the actual real diagnosis. A few weeks prior to her death, they had actually gone to the beach in California. Um, Alfred, Disha, Alfreda, Robin, and Jacaren. Several pictures supported this. And of course, authorities confiscated those and nobody ever saw them again. Naturally, in these pictures, Jacaren was happy and smiling and healthy. But, you know, those weren't used in the trial. And that whole ass Robin, once again tripped herself up because during the trial, she said that while they were at the beach, Alfred was in the water with Disha. So she was the one left caring for the baby because she was so worried about the baby getting stepped on in the sand. Then she said that when they were leaving, Alfred was like walking way ahead of her with Disha and that, you know, she was kind of lagging behind because Ja'Karen was walking disoriented and she seemed out of it 
which means once again, she was left alone in Robin's care. Like they're showing prosecution and defense that there are several holes in this story. It is clear that the system has failed Alfred greatly. And I really hope that there is some type of way that this proof can be shown and that even though, you know, he's obviously already been executed, that his family can still get justice because that's deserved at this point. Y'all took this man's life and y'all clearly just disregarded all of this evidence that would have cleared him. So y'all want to know something that I found interesting? For every capital punishment case, the government allocates $2 million per year per case. Now, if the case takes longer than a year, another $2 million is added. So at the start of Alfred's trial, the prosecution had accumulated a budget of about $6 million to attempt to prove him guilty, being able to, you know, buy or fabricate any documents or evidence that was needed. Evidence like witnesses that could testify on Alfred's behalf suddenly being murdered within months of each other. Evidence like taking all the documentation of pictures that showed that he was actually a good father and not the violent person that y'all were trying to make him out to be, perhaps. And anything else that they could find that that would refute their claims that, you know, he's guilty, it was just mysteriously disappearing. The 18 and a half years that Alfred was on death row, the government made $37 million. So, of course, losing is not an option. That's why I feel like the prosecution was going so hard to convict this man. And this isn't to say that everybody is going to agree with me. Like some people may feel like he's guilty and, you know, that's totally your opinion. We really don't have a choice but to respect it. But there's a lot of evidence. Like there are a lot of things that were hidden in this case that really make you feel like, okay, this should look like a cover up. Like this looks like they just wanted to put a body in one of those cells and make money off of him because let's be real. We've been saying it for years. Prison is designed to get rich off the backs of our people. Hard labor for cheap pay. Not to say that every single person in there is innocent because we know, yes, there are people in prison that belong in prison, but they stuff as many as bodies as they can into a cell. And like I like to think of it, it's the modern day slave trade. But I digress. Bethany continues to fight for justice for those who are on death row that are wrongfully convicted. She still pushes and fights every day showing that, you know, her father was innocent. She married Sheldon, who was with her during the trial. I wonder if this was the boo that she had asked her dad could she go to New York with. It doesn't say, but they've been together for a good minute, so I think it is. Um, they have Justice for Alfred, which is on Facebook, and it's also a website as well. And it gives a lot of details and insight to the case. From what I know, her sister, Disha, she did have a few conversations with, and she had posted some of them online, but it kind of appears that Disha kind of faded away. Um, now, she did have a relative, and it didn't say which relative, but there were some posts made on Facebook from some like fake pages like, the username was like Oscar Meyer, where it stated that Alfred was a murderer and that her sisters didn't support her, you know, pushing this whole her dad was innocent thing. So I'm like, OK, all right, girl, it seemed like, you know, this might be real specific, like this might be the sisters. Robin has pretty much just gone off the grid and it might be the best thing for her because baby, you got to live with yourself each and every day. You got to live with the choices that you made. And if you really are guilty of killing that little girl, like I think that you are, and an innocent man was put to death because of it, ain't enough prayers in the world, baby. Okay. Satan might as well move over, bow down and give up the crown to the new freaking, the, the, the new queen. Like, because that is some, you, lower than hell. I want to close out with a letter that Alfred wrote. Now, this was a letter that he wrote to his nephew, Taylor, and it, it, it tugged at me, y'all. 
It says, hello, nephew Taylor, this Uncle Junebug. With tears in my eyes, Bouget's time on earth is coming to an end as of 12-11. I'm out this dump. I love you, little man. I respect you, and I want to say a proper goodbye to you one-on-one. It's painful to have to write you a letter to say goodbye for good. I have made arrangements for my body to be cremated, then shipped to Canada where my eldest daughter lives. She visited me, and I told her once she gets my cremated ashes to catch the ferry boat in Canada where she lives and let my ashes blow over the water with her and my son, Alfred Jr. But Taylor, at approximately 6.30 p.m. to 7 p.m., I need you to grant Uncle Junebug one last wish for me. Open your Bible at approximately 6.30 p.m. or 7 p.m. Read the 23rd Psalm for Bouget. Please, little nephew, do this for me on my way out of this earth. Always know that God loves you, little nephew, and so do I. I'm at peace. No more anxiety, depression, stress. No more arguing and listening at other condemned prisoners pointing fingers when they ain't looking at the spectacles in their own eyes. Taylor, for real, Uncle Junebug, so glad I'm out of this dump and this hellhole. I'm really at peace. I'm going to a better place with no more suffering and backbiting. Take care, and man, please stay away from all that gossip. Damn. He had to send that letter through other inmates because he wasn't allowed to contact anyone directly. Like, that's how fucked up the justice system really is. That is all for this week's episode of The Infamous Ones, a true crime podcast. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram and TikTok at Infamous One Podcast. And that one is actually like the number one. And you can leave a review there. Also on X, formerly Twitter, at Infamous One Pod, where you can also leave a review. Facebook, you can send a friend request to The Infamous Ones. It's a public page. I pretty much accept everybody. Or you can join the discussion group, The Infamous Ones Discussion Group, where we really like get down to the nitty gritty. Um, you will need to answer questions to get in because like these damn bots is out of control. Oh, and did I mention leave a review? And, you know, the show streams on multiple streaming services. I just tell everybody, type in The Infamous Ones, a true crime podcast on Google, and it'll show you all the services that it streams on where you can leave a review. Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Audible, you name it. There are way too many ways that you can leave a review. So let's make it happen, people. Speaking of reviews... This one comes from Synovia on Apple Podcasts, and it says, Loved it. The podcast is one of my new favorites. I love how Kay tells the stories of cases that I've never even heard of. It is especially dope when she does the, you know you done fucked up part. That is so funny to me. She tells it like it is, and is very entertaining. Thank you, boo. It is definitely appreciated. I love the whole, you know, you don't fucked up part two, but I think I kind of like the, what was the reason? A little bit more. <laughs> but, you know, it's easy to use because all these fools fuck up. Um, there's another review here that comes from Anissa Shepard, and this is in the Facebook discussion group. And she was commenting on the Danita Smith episode with the murderer, Shannon Crawley. And it says... I remember watching this. That girl tried everything she could to get away with this. I couldn't believe her family was that blind, but I think they were just trying to stick beside her because ain't no way they was believing all her mess, but whatever. She was very delusional, but I also think that Jameer was a piece of shit because he probably knew she was a little nuts after he broke it off. If he really did, could have been still smashing. But... I'm glad she was found guilty. I'm glad you gave that update as well because we don't get that after watching. I also liked your voice and your add-ins. What was the reason? Good job. (laughs) Well, thank you, boo. I do what I can, you know. Listen, real quick. Thank you all for sharing this podcast the way that you have. I started out with like 10 streams per episode and like I was texting my friends and family to listen and you know that whole thing of, you know, strangers will support you before friends and family will. But now when I go on and I see hundreds of people streaming, it just, it really makes me feel like y'all are really rocking, you know, y'all are rocking with your girl. So I love y'all for real. If you have a case that you want to hear more on that you feel has been ignored in the Black community, 
or if you want to leave a review there as well, send an email to infamous1one pod at gmail.com. That's infamous1one pod at gmail.com. Until then, I'm your girl Kay. Thank you for tuning in and I'll see y'all next week with a brand new episode. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Infamous Ones, a true crime podcast hosted by Kay. Be sure to like and comment on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so that you never miss an episode.